0: In the mornings she liked to get up before the house stirred She liked to make coffee She stepped across
1: to the dock Out of the upholstered sway of the night Out of the unsteady
2: hours Then everybody began to travel out To Cano, Lagos, Toronto
1: Barely conscious of what I was doing As if pushed I stepped off Salahogin Street
3: I like to think I'm offering something a little different
4: Something a little different indeed. Hello and welcome to the Fictionable Podcast with me, Richard Lee. For this edition, we thought we'd ask our contributors to introduce their stories themselves. That is, if they can remember anything at all about them.
1: I'm Amy Sackville, the story... I can't remember what the story's called. <laughs> <laughs> that That's brilliant. Oh, what is it called? Jesus uh, Can we do that again? Yeah, let's do that again. <laughs>
4: To start us off, here's Evie Wilde With a little bit from the opening of her story, The Land We'll be hearing from Evie again in a minute
0: In the mornings, she liked to get up before the house stirred She liked to make coffee and stretch and wash her face To take her vitamins and write half a page of journal She liked to do these things, but she never did She woke at 5am and lay there listening to the birds Taking their turns in chorus the thrum of wings as they attack the feeder. Too much to do. The dishwasher needed...
4: So what's it all about?
0: It's about her connection with the land and the sort of um, the pull and the push of, does she want to keep hold of the land and go there with her child or does she want to sell it? And what ghosts are in the woods? I'm Amy Sackville. The story is
1: manifest. Sailing into this port that is a dream of a port. Pale, yellow stone, umber shadowed, early light framing the brilliant red of roof tiles. The shadow of the walled city cast across the sea and the slant bright shimmer of the water beyond it. A deep blue where the sky. It's about a woman who wants to escape from herself, I think, and from the circumstance she's found herself in about the ways in which cities kind of take root in our imaginations and as almost dream cities, so it opens with the description of the city as if it were a dream.
4: Because you can tell us, right? That this is all autobiographical, isn't it?
1: Uh, not really. <laughs> I, in the, I've never been on a cruise. I've never run away from my tour party <laughs> and got drunk on my own in a city.
4: <laughs> it's not just it's ripped exactly from the pages of your travel notebook.
1: <laughs> Only the descriptive parts. <laughs>
4: Is Yasmeen Seal reading her version in English of Adania Shibley's Mushrooms Withering in My Fridge?
1: In the street, a breeze was blowing, darkened by car fumes, occasionally stirring up a napkin or a scrap of old newspaper. Light glanced off their musical movement. It was a beautiful afternoon, maddeningly so. Badly conscious of what I was doing.
2: My name is Arize Ifakandu, and my story is titled Nightbirds. For a long time, I said to the American, the house was the biggest in the village of Urubaleke. It was square and wide, surrounded by walls that were in turn surrounded by flowers. A one story building whose head he could only glimpse hidden as it was behind dense trees, then everybody began to travel out to Kano, Lagos, Toronto, returning to pull down their family's rust. So what's the story about? You know it's a really difficult question to answer, but like I, I think on like just on one line I'll I'll say the story is about encounters, um, and sort of the how fraught encounters can be, you know
4: what's the difference between the way your fiction is read in the US or the UK and in Nigeria?
2: When I've heard back from Nigerians, it's really quite Nigerians. It's usually like a lot of the feedback feel more personal, if that makes sense.
3: Hi, my name's Julian Hanshaw, and my story is called AA. Thing is, it was a happy accident meeting you. I meant to contact the other AA, but of course I was drunk. I hear that a lot. I really do. I like to think I'm offering something a little different. So, where did the idea come from, Julian? I think it came from an idea I had a while back, which was to do with conspiracy theories and the Hollow Earth. And I started with a little story of two men going to Antarctica to discover the Hollow Earth, which is based on supposedly a true story about Admiral Byrd discovering the Hollow Earth in Antarctica, if you were to believe that. Was it
4: obvious right from the start that you wanted to make a contrast between the world above and the world below?
3: I tend not to use black and white at all in any of my comics. I found this gave me a a great chance to experiment with the black and white because of the very nature that I wanted to have it looking rather dowdy. And I was enjoying drawing it in the middle of a very hot, balmy summer. So I'm drawing a rather brittle, cold looking landscape in black and white. Once the rug is pulled back, his his grotty little house is bathed in in a glorious kind of pink inner glow. So, yeah, I was really enjoying having that play between the two worlds, stark play between the two worlds.
4: Julian Hanshaw on his Wizard of Oz moment. And we'll be posting some of the preliminary sketches charting Julian's journey into Technicolour on Twitter and on Instagram. There's another world in Evie Wilde's story as well, a world that can be glimpsed at the edge of the forest. Though, if you haven't read it yet, you might want to head to world and check out her story before you carry on listening. When I went to find Evie in Peckham, I began by asking how she started mapping out the land.
0: My family have got this bit of woodland on the Isle of Wight that we've had since the 80s. I've been going there since I was about five and you can't build on it, so it's just this bit of old wood that was wasteland when we bought it and we've kind of tarted it up a bit and made it a nice place to be but when I was a kid we would go there every weekend in sort of February um, and it was quite intense and we'd stay in like a little two-man caravan with mice and rats yep. and spiders and <laughs> and in some ways it hasn't changed much since then but um <laughs> but I don't go in the winter anymore and um it's an incredibly atmospheric place. It's beautiful and, you know, we're so lucky to have it. But as a kid and as a teenager, I had quite a um, a weird relationship with it. I think the Isle of Wight itself is quite an odd place and I've got a lot of affection for it, but it is quite um, a bizarre place. Our little spot is this kind of oddly timeless place and my parents... There was a lot of um, partying happening. When you were young? When I was very young, yeah. And so there's a lot of of drink and, and drugs. And I think it got me thinking about this kind of strange place you enter into when you become a parent of like being expected to give yourself up, to give your the life as you know it up. And what happens when people don't do that? And sometimes negative, sometimes positive outcomes of that. And the way that it enables the child or it enabled me to kind of be a bit of a a creepy watcher of adults. <laughs> um, and so I spent, I spent a lot of time, you know, sat with the adults, but largely ignored by them, which, you know, sounds like boohoo, but you know, <laughs> I was perfectly happy to be ignored by them. But it did mean that I was able to listen in on what they were talking about and and kind of understand stuff about them that I don't think they would have spoken about or laughed about had I been a bit more of a kind of rambunctious child. I was quite an ill kid and very shy and quiet and good at blending into the furniture. So um, it's a funny place and and being a parent now and going there with my son is interesting because I was kind of left to my own devices there and would happily, like, disappear into the woods, read a book, be on my own for the day. It's not really how kids function now, and I think there's good things and bad things about that. I think that was the seed of it, this beautiful, uncomfortable place.
4: The place on the Isle of Wight is an awkward place for you in some sense, but is it also, like, a bit spooky? I'm wondering where the ghost came from.
0: Yeah, I think I am really interested in in ghosts and, and monsters and supernatural stuff, and so... Most of my work involves at least a ghost (laughs) because it's just sort of where my interests lie, especially when you're looking at English forests. There's something really interesting about folklore and the, you know, the spookiness of all those old stories that you were told as kids. And it it feels like so ingrained in me to seek out the tree spirits or the the nasty little things with teeth and claws and... um, it's how I spent my childhood in those woods, imagining the creepy little things that were around me.
4: The idea of something out there watching you.
0: There always is, whether it's birds or squirrels or whatever, they are highly aware of you being there and, and of the danger that you, <laughs> you, you cause to their families and all of that sort of thing. And the, we always like to think of ourselves as looking out for the dangerous things, but we're looked at as the danger when we're in the woods.
4: No, I've got a stupid question. I mean do you believe in ghosts? Have you ever seen one?
0: I am an atheist, but I believe that people see ghosts. It's to do with with an extension of ourselves. It's to do with how we're feeling in that particular moment, you know, when someone dies that you're very close to the feeling of them sticking around. After my father died, I used to often see the back of a man walking down the street where he used to work in in Bond Street, I would follow that man because it looked so much from the back like my father. And in those moments, there was no difference. That was a version of my father. And if he turned around, obviously it would go away. But I think the parameters around ghosts are really interesting. You know, you have a dream and they visit you in a dream and they say something to you. What's the difference between that and a ghost? What's the difference between smelling them and a ghost? And also I think there's the moment that I feel that I most kind of classically experienced a ghost was when my son was a newborn and me and my husband both experienced stuff happening in our flat that felt like it was the doings of a the ghost. <laughs> and there was something going on. There was something going on and we both felt it, you know, the our the hair on our arms raising up and the sort of crackling atmosphere and a, that silence that drops. You know, we're both atheists. Neither of us believe in afterlife or in a sort of spooky sort of sheet and <laughs> um, jangling chains and stuff but something still happened and i think that's quite common this newborn ghosting haunting
4: you said it a couple of times that you're an atheist you don't believe do you mm. think there's a connection between religion and ghosts then
0: yeah i'm sure that i'm sure if you know if i was someone who believed in an afterlife i bet i'd see loads more ghosts <laughs> <laughs>
4: do you regret that
0: <laughs> yeah it's a bit of a shame <laughs> i find i do i find religion fascinating because I come from quite a religious family in like the old british sense in that topically my great grandfather was the dean of windsor who was at the coronation <laughs> <laughs> and um, there's a lot of belief in heaven and uh, in my family and and god and that sort of that sort of thing i find it fascinating because i cannot work out how you just believe in something you know when you get people coming to your door and they're like yeah but you'll be saved if x y z and the thing that's always puzzled me is like, yes, but I don't believe, so it doesn't matter. I don't understand how that, how the jump comes, how you just go, oh, well, sorry, I didn't understand, I'd be going to hell, so therefore I will now believe. But you don't believe. I don't know, I find that fascinating. And, you know, if this was a horror movie, being an atheist would mean I'd have the shit scared out of me by a very real ghost. <laughs> and, um, and then... And then, yeah. Yeah. I think that I think that's fascinating, and the the sort of moral trope of ghosts and monsters in horror movies is always so interesting.
4: Now, do you think this might be a horror movie?
0: Um, the the story.
4: No, no, this right now. Do this you think right there's...
0: now, it could be, it could be. I mean, <laughs> who's to say?
4: <laughs> Watch out for that axe. I was wondering because the ghosts or monsters in your earlier work they always seem to be at one removal, kind of hiding in the bushes, and whereas particularly in the Bass Rock, they're kind of right there, front and centre. And I was wondering if there's a kind of pivot moment with your memoir, your graphic memoir, Everything is Teeth, where the surreal stuff kind of comes out front and centre.
0: One of the things that I find myself reminding myself with every book is that you can do whatever you want. You've got the whole world to choose from and then you've got all of the other worlds. There was something in that memoir... The the drawings are done by a close friend of mine called Joe Sumner. We worked on that memoir for about seven years and I would write some text, he would respond with drawings and then I would respond to those drawings and then he would respond to my new text and it went on and on and on. About three years in, he just showed me this image of little me walking down the street in a spotlight with a shark behind me and it opened up this whole thing in the in that book and it weirdly helped us move through time in the book as well like now it it's mostly about childhood and then suddenly there's a sort of telescoping forward to present day and I think that understanding that you can put the ghost at the forefront is especially in what in the novel I'm writing now is is like really important and interesting to me yeah
4: I was just wondering if that image that shark floating behind you on the page there if that unlocked something gave you kind of a permission to sort of go for it a bit
0: yeah I think it making it a bit more abstract is really helpful and um looking at it from a a different angle is is always really helpful one of the things that I use as a writing device is when I get really stuck I've got a draft uh, there's something kind of that needs to be unlocked or expanded on or like the it needs to find its wings a bit is I chuck a shark in (laughs) and that is always helpful because it's a real problem that you have to work around and and I think the more I write the more I am aware of those methods of just like let's chuck something really weird in here and just see what happens and you know maybe take it out later on but so far, the sharks have all stayed. <laughs>
4: <laughs> <laughs> They've got the teeth, hang on. <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly.
4: There's a bit of a challenge, though, if you're going to throw, I don't know, a shark or a ghost into a story. There's there's a challenge to kind of get the reader to come along with you. Is that partly why you're so careful about the detail or the kind of the realist stuff that that's around it?
0: Yeah, I think once you've got your reader to trust you, then you can really fuck with them. <laughs> 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 um, um, would be the ungenerous way of putting it but I think to have something frightening like genuinely frightening happen to a character the reader has to be invested in them and has to understand them as a real person and not just a kind of clip art person that that is there so that nasty things can happen to them I want it to be what if you or me were in this situation and this happened then how would that change you and how would you feel and there's no interest in it just happening for the sake of it
4: it's not that you're putting in weird stuff because weird stuff's happening it's actually just describing the reality
0: i mean i think if you sort of break down a horror movie the moment that you see the monster all the fear trickles out and it's only it's the lead up to it and it's how those characters respond to their environment that is interesting and that is believable and and is really what we're there for, I think. You know, if you look at It by Stephen King, the movie, there's nothing more frightening on the planet than Tim Curry dressed as a clown. That's like, don't need anything else further than that. And then, and then it's a big spider that you knock over. And by that point, which is supposed to be the peak scary moment, you're just like, kind of just switch it off before then. Don't really care at that point. Whereas prior to that, you're so invested in all these kids and their relationships and their families. A lot of horror movies do that. They have that beautiful slow burn and interest in the character and then they just have to tie it all together. And it's really, really hard. You know, it's, I'm not, I'm not slagging them off. Having tried to write a few horror movies, I get so into the, the lead-up. And then I'll get to, like, the last two scenes and I'm like, I haven't got a reason that any of this has happened. <laughs> Shelve it.
4: You just want to write the first half?
0: Yeah, totally. I do feel the same about novels. It's a terrible thing to admit to because being a writer and knowing that how much work goes into making it a complete thing with the proper ending, but I quite often feel like I totally lose interest in novels two chapters from the end because i'm just i don't i don't care about it all and you know my favorite writers don't wrap it all up in a neat bow but i i will so enjoy just that journey i don't want it sealed off you know i don't want it cleanly cut so that i no longer think about those characters and they're sort of safe i want to keep them in that sort of limbo
4: as well as the kind of leap into the beyond real Mm. in the land there's also another leap back into your protagonist's childhood this Mm. seems to be something of a trademark for you is that a way of kind of broadening things out of opening up more territory
0: i think it's maybe to do with how we think about time and you know when somebody close to you dies it does something funny to time and you kind of find yourself turning backwards and going in circles and there is a period of time where you think about them only as their death and then the further you away from that you get, the more you think about the earlier times you knew them and the different kind of angles you knew them from. Personally, I always feel very connected to my childhood. I've always had this sort of problem that I'm so fascinated by other people's snapshots of their, you know, photo albums. I didn't realise until I met my husband that... It bores the shit out of most people, <laughs> so I would endlessly be like, "Look, this. Um, this is my parents when they were young. How interesting is that?" And and he would just be like, "That is not interesting in the slightest." <laughs> um, but I will pour through anyone who I even tangentially know. If their nan gives me their photo album, I will be all over it. I just I find it so interesting and and to find expressions and um, echoes in those photographs.
4: That kind of slice of time next to each other rather than in that kind of linear progression.
0: Yeah, I think that's really important to me and I think the um, going back to a character's childhood to know them better. The first novel I wrote after the Fire is Still, Small Voice, I can remember vividly, like, the moment I was like, this is going to be about a man going to a shack in the sugar cane, and that's what it's going to be about. And then feeling stuck, because I was like, I don't know who he is. And the only way I could know him was by looking at his parents, and then they became a large part of it, and then their parents became... And, you know, I could have gone on forever, and I had to be told to stop... <laughs> <laughs> Because I think like the the trickle-down effect of trauma and of happiness and beauty and memories and the um, inherited trauma I think is fascinating. I recently found out that my Australian grandmother was in an orphanage for a certain amount of time because her mother didn't have the money to keep her after her father died and that my grandmother would kind of roam the corridors of the orphanage in floods of tears you know sort of dreadful Mm. stuff my mother has always been bad at goodbyes and and I've always had this like feeling of homesickness as well um, which I always put down to the fact that my mother is Australian and came over when she was in her 20s and never went home but actually I think it's something that's inherited from that massive trauma in my grandmother's life which you know neither of us really thought about it being directly linked but it makes so much sense that sadness that is like deep in the pit of your stomach that is like from some wound that isn't able to be healed
4: and it's just that thing of that time reaching across those long years and making an effect on the present
0: absolutely yeah and you know the the micro ways in which my grandmother would have behaved towards her daughter, which she will have picked up and behaved towards me, and, and you don't know that you're passing it on. You don't know where it's from.
4: Have you ever written a story that goes straight from the beginning to the end? No,
0: <laughs> I have not. <laughs> I don't know how I would do that. I, I'm in awe of people who can do that and, and make their characters full and whole and feeling, and it's just not the way I think. Mm.
4: There's another leap as well in this. It's a short story, but it slides into the present tense. What's the thinking there?
0: The present tense is so useful for memory. It kind of feels like an old man talking to you in the pub or a fairy tale feel. It's the way we experience memories. You experience them as a a rush in the face of an image. And often they can feel more technicolour than reality, I think, or the, the current time. They're kind of condensed, aren't they, into how you remember it, which isn't necessarily the reality of it. So I think there's something about using the the present tense for that mode of storytelling, which is helpful and switches you into a different a different layer of life. I feel much more able in the present tense to do wilder things, maybe because the past tense is that traditional novelistic sound
4: it's set down it's established
0: it's established nothing can change whereas it feels much more immediate the present tense like you you almost feel like your character could die and the story would still exist
4: i wanted to ask as well what's the secret of your amazing kids you're so great at the kids they're brilliant (laughs) in the bass where michael and christopher don't know what to do with their faces when ruth breaks the bowl and it's just where the kids from
0: i think it's an understanding that Kids are just inexperienced adults. (laughs) They're like, they are, you know, if you think back to yourself as a child, the earliest you can think, you're still the same person. You still think in broadly the same directions and the same inner monologue and anxieties and all that stuff. I think where people go slightly wrong with writing children is when they either try and make them, you know, all too innocent and cute, and you see it all the time with in film you're just using a child as a symbol of innocence and purity and niceness and kids can be right little shits. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's that's all for the good I think that's like like there's a very uncomfortable thing about disliking a child isn't there but it's like they are a person i dislike plenty of adults why can't I dislike your child <laughs> um, obviously I don't say this to the parents but giving them the respect that they're due is part of it Jim in the um, in the land is he's got quite an adult voice for a so five year old or whatever he is that's the sort of thing that is wonderful, one of the things that's wonderful about kids is just their ability to cut through everything the inappropriateness of children is so helpful (laughs) and it and it is in life as well you know they will cut across you having a row with your partner and just be like what's all this shit about then (laughs) and it's like and it's perfect and it's always toned perfectly yeah I mean my son at the minute is he's really into anatomy and and he's into he's seven he's into listing off his ailments. He's like, I think I have depression and anxiety and hemorrhoids, and it's like, okay, well, let's you know, sit down, and talk about this. Let's and, do with that. <laughs> yeah, and it's a you know, it's a it's a brilliant gateway into a conversation with them about other things.
4: And also, I've got to ask about your men as well. I mean, your men are so useless. I mean, Ed, God love him, he's not <laughs> he's not as awful and dangerous as some of the men in the Bass Rock, but still, you know, are you drawing from life there as well?
0: <laughs> well, I don't know. I think. I think that's one reading of them. I think another reading of Ed is he's just incredibly optimistic. Um, (laughs) And, you know, maybe he is skating over the truth of his wife. But just that kind of... I like quite often have this conversation with people about the Bass Rock, where it's like, oh, all the men in here are monsters. And it's actually, like, they're really not... There are the two boys who turn into the, the adult men that you meet and they're damaged by men and they're... I think it's important when you're writing about men to kind of engage with the fact that while they may be doing the harmful stuff, they are still harmed by it. And the, the massive sadness that, you know, patriarchy doesn't, doesn't make anyone happy.
4: Amen to that. That was Evie Wilde. You can read The Land and all these amazing stories for autumn 2022 on your laptop, tablet or mobile at fictionable.world. Just hit subscribe in the menu on the right-hand side and you'll get four issues a year of brand new short fiction and graphic stories for £20. That's all for this time, so thanks to Evie Wilde, Amy Sackville, Jasmine Seal, Arunzia Fakandu, Julian Hanshaw, and to Ian Chambers for this excellent spooky music. Tell us what you make of it all, at Fictionable World on Twitter, or on Instagram, or via steam-powered email on info at fictionable.world. So from me, Richard Lee, and our producer, Esther Pokejenny, thanks for listening, and goodbye.